If you believe that business can be a highly effective force for good, then you'll really enjoy this episode. Our guest is a widely followed expert on marketing and management, consumer decision-making, business education and learning, and business's role in trust and economic opportunity. My conversation with Bill Bolding, Dean of Duke University's Fuqua School of Business on the Manage Your Message podcast. Welcome to the Manage Your Message podcast, where professionals come for ideas and inspiration to grow. By talking about their businesses more effectively and getting lots of other people to do the same. Here is your host, consultant, professional speaker, and author, Jim Carr. Come on in to the second half of my conversation with Bill Bolding, the Dean of Duke University's Fuqua School of Business. Not only is Bill the leader of one of the world's elite graduate business schools, but he is also a thought leader in his own right. For example, recognized as one of the top voices to follow on LinkedIn, and you'll see him interviewed in top news and business media outlets worldwide. In this episode, Bill and I will discuss changes in how top business schools are preparing students for leadership roles of the future, the real differences in millennials from other generations, and how leaders shape the culture in their companies. So let's pick it up as we talked about organizational leaders adapting to an increasingly public voice in many political or controversial issues. For years and years, I think a number of organizations and companies kind of play the the safe middle, right? You want to be good corporate citizens and support things that no one could disagree with. There are others, oftentimes challenger brands or uh, others that that they want to be edgy. They simply want to prompt conversation and attention, even if, and maybe strategically they're going, they, they want to annoy some people or turn some people away from them. It seems like though, as you said, there's an era that there are certain issues, there are certain conversations that almost in the present day, you're compelled to be part of, because if you're not, then it it will signal to some others a lack of empathy or just a lack of understanding that there are a lot of voices out there and that it may not even be as important. Specifically, what you say is that you actively join in the conversation. That's, it sounds like that's kind of where we are. I want to come back to this idea that, that the world really has changed. And in some sense, as, a, as business schools, we haven't prepared leaders for this change. This has not been a part of our curriculum to help people think through what is it, you know, how do I respond to this collision between business and politics, between business and social forces that are kind of ripping people apart. And so one thing I'll say about this is I don't think I could tell anyone what to do. Like I can't tell you this is the thing you should do, but we do believe that we as a business school have a responsibility for preparing the leaders of the future for thinking about when you're in this position, we're not going to tell you what the right answer is in terms of what, what choices you make, but we can prepare you so that when you, when you have to make those decisions, you have a way of thinking through how you will make that decision. And so we 
we introduce a, a course in our curriculum around business and politics, which has been uh, wildly successful and wildly popular with our students as they try to struggle with these really challenging issues of you know, what what do we do about gun violence? What do we do if confronted with immigration issues? What do we do if confronted with LGBT legislation? I mean, there are just a whole series of things that are bringing people in. And again, in the kind of very topically, Levi Strauss made an announcement that they're they're going to take a very active role in this space around gun violence, and they don't feel they can be on the sidelines. So, so these these things aren't going to go away. And and again, we can't give you a formula for how you how you make these decisions, but we do want to prepare people to think about what's the thought process that they'll go through as they do have to figure out what response they'll they'll make. It's interesting, and and for everyone's edification, now the Fuqua School of Business is graduate business programs. Duke University does not have an undergraduate business major. And Bill, I think your your students across programs typically are in, in the age categories are from late 20s on into their 30s and, and 40s and beyond. And so as you're saying, uh, you know, kind of preparing this group of people who are going to very quickly be in leadership roles it also brings up just the whole issue of the, the talk about millennials and a lot of assumptions about their different uh, communication habits, their learning styles, their social radar and social sensibilities. And you're, you're right in the middle of that with that program and just all of the things that you do. I even noted that a major organization rated Durham, North Carolina, which is the home of Duke University, as a number one place for millennials to live. So I wonder from your perspective, I mean, how much of the purported differences in millennials is real and is or parts of it that are just, you know, people who are cranky and older, uh, <laughs> basically <laughs> saying, I just, uh, this younger generation, you know, which is kind of always been the case, but are, are you seeing yeah. substantive differences? And, and are you also, on the other hand, seeing common threads across the, the generations that really, you know, aren't that different at all? Yeah, of course, there's been, there's been a lot of attention on this question. There's been a lot of data collected that, that suggests there, there really are some differences with, with millennials. And at the same time, some of the things that that have been said, some people from previous generations go, wait a minute, that that's no different from me. You know, case in point, a lot has been made of the idea that millennials really are looking for a sense of purpose and and meaning in terms of the choices they make in in their career, and I think that that's true. But then you look at previous generations and they go, what you think I don't care about having purpose and meaning in my life, and 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 in fact, everybody wants purpose and meaning in their life. But what does seem to be striking is that millennials don't just say, okay, if you tell me, if you tell me this is the situation, fine, I'll just move ahead. Everything is, is good. Put my head down, I'll 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 do the work. I, I do think that one of the things that really is apparent is that with millennials, you have to engage with them in a way where they they understand deeply what it is you're trying to accomplish. 
and don't take anything for granted in in interactions with millennials that that they will you know they'll see they'll see your logic they'll see your big picture and just take for granted that everything is fine they really want to understand and i think that's important that people should be questioning always questioning one another about why we're doing something to make sure that we're doing the right things and and so there are differences and some of this plays out the the way the business community talks about it is that there's less loyalty from millennials and you have a harder time keeping them engaged but i think this connects to what i just said which is don't just assume they'll be engaged you have to convince them by your transparency by your openness by your willingness to co-create with them a future path that shows them the opportunities to do something that really will matter over time so so i think that that's a really interesting aspect of of this younger generation one of the things that that we have found to be an interesting take on the old model of of mentoring is the idea of reverse mentoring and this this comes from millennials knowing things that older generations don't know about and and believing things and acting in ways that are different where it can create disconnects and so historically we've always had this model in society which is the older generations pass on their wisdom their insights to the younger generations but now what we're finding is this idea of reverse mentoring where those younger generations really have something to say to to older generations about how they view the world how they navigate the world what makes them tick in ways that you can really get the most out of your workforce and so you're seeing many companies and many senior leaders start to institute formal reverse mentoring programs in addition to their traditional mentoring programs and what we've done in our programs where you mentioned that in, in we actually serve a fairly diverse age range is that we've tried to take advantage of of the idea that that there's wisdom to be passed in both directions in traditional mentoring and in reverse mentoring it's really interesting and it it gets to the big issue of culture and how you build that and and sustain that over time back previously in the conversation we even talked about your efforts at the Fuqua School to develop messaging and branding that felt relevant and, and the collaborative co-creation process for doing that because there's so many constituencies to serve. I know we're coming close to the end of our time and I thought we might address that cultural piece a bit. I've heard a number of company leaders, organizational leaders, and when they talk about culture and if you ask them, when do you work on the culture? And I typically hear back something like every single day, you know, and, and that's if it's going to be real and if it's going to be something that binds our organization together, then it is something that has to be reinforced all the time. And so you might be able to speak a bit, just your own experience and, and what you do within the Fuqua School of Business and across campus with uh, continuing to reinforce and, and reevaluate the culture. I also know for all you college basketball fans out there, and frankly, anyone would probably know of uh, Coach K, Mike Krzyzewski. 
He actually has an affiliation with the Fuqua School. I've heard him talk a little bit about agility and the ways to maintain some agility in your organization. He's someone who's maintained a very high level of success, even as the environment for recruiting and performance in, in college basketball has changed dramatically from when, when he started. He's been able to adapt his own practices. So if you speak the kinds of things that others may uh, find helpful in terms of how do you keep your fingers on the culture and how do you continue to reinforce that and, and stay agile with it over time? So many things to say, so little time. Let me start with, uh, in addition to the CMO survey, we also run a CFO survey out of the business school. And so some of my finance colleagues studied the role of culture in organizations. And and I think to their surprise, discovered that if, if you look at business leadership, they profoundly believe in the importance of culture in terms of being able to generate positive performance for their firm. So it's not it's not a squishy thing. It's something that is directly connected to your ability to, to generate value in the marketplace. And so you can never take culture for granted. And it's worth, it's worth all of the work and effort required to build and sustain a, a vibrant culture. So what are some of the things? Number one, your, your point about a, an agile culture and Coach K and how he has built a a phenomenal culture around Duke basketball, but that they constantly pivot, change, do things in a way that they keep them relevant, that you want to be very careful that as you think about the, the underlying values that then constitute the culture, the air that you breathe, that you don't want to lock yourself into something that is time specific. You want the culture itself to be a dynamic living organism such that you can retain the best of who you are while at the same time adapting to circumstances. And so for us, for example, at the core of of who we are is that we want to build the instinct into people to bring out the the best from people around them and get them to work with common purpose. And if you think about a culture that's built around that simple idea, that's going to be a living, growing, dynamic, positively changing culture because you're constantly seeking input, the best from the people who who make up your culture in a way that, that you can grow and develop. Having said that, when you are looking to build a particular culture, you have to live up to that culture. And and this is where, again, I think life is getting so complicated, which is I think that, that people used to think that they could just worry about the culture within the bubble of their own organization. And kind of an interesting um, set of developments where uh, when I've been talking to firms in Silicon Valley over the years, they've acknowledged that that Silicon Valley is in a bubble, and then California is in a bubble, and then there's the world out there, and, and and now, like the world is entering into that Silicon Valley bubble where they're saying, "Hey, we're not so sure those things that you're doing are helping," and and that's a a big change where now the bubble is popped and society is coming in. 
And so organizations have to be thinking about how will their culture respond to the, the changes in, in what's going on in society. And so you're seeing some of these tech firms really struggle with divisions in society around freedom of speech and, again, privacy versus public and, and so on and so forth, whether they're being manipulated by different groups. And this is a really challenging issue, which is your culture has to be permeable. You, you can't block society out. You have to recognize that what's happening in society will affect your culture, but you want to build a culture that says, we're paying attention, we're sensitive to the people in our environment, recognizing what's happening to them in the world at large. And we have people on our team who are going to work together, who hold core values that allow them to work together to, as I said before, not see their differences as a point of contention, but rather see their differences as an upside. And so it takes constant work to create an organization where people feel like they belong, that they're a part of that culture, that they're making that culture, that they're co-creating that culture, because it can't just be something you say, this is what I want everyone to do. Everyone has to live that culture, live those values. And therefore, it takes constant, constant work to make sure that what you've got is real, that people believe in it, that they celebrate the culture, and that they promote the culture on a consistent basis, as opposed to what can so easily happen, which is events take place, which are incompatible with your underlying culture, and then you start to see decay and a, and a degrading of that culture. So it's an enormous amount of work. That's why you hear, going back to your comment about CEOs maybe spending less time with customers than would be ideal, but CEOs really are focusing a lot on, on culture and the work that it takes to maintain a, a healthy, vibrant culture. Wow, what a great conversation uh, this has been, and we we could go on and on, but the demands of your time and responsibilities, message managers, this has been a great conversation with Bill Bolding, Dean of Duke University's Fuqua School of Business. I encourage you, if you're an, on LinkedIn, to follow him and uh, to pay attention on uh, a lot of his thoughts and ideas and the practices that he sees uh, when it comes to leading good business and uh, helping lead business for good. Bill Bolding, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, Jim. And thank you for asking questions, which were far, far better than any answers I could give. <laughs> Thanks for joining the conversation. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. If so, then please share it with friends and colleagues who likewise would find this valuable. And please do subscribe, rate, and review. That's the big deal in the podcast world so that others can find us. We'll have summaries and links in the show notes. Plus, you can learn more about managing the message at manageyourmessagepodcast.com or jimcarr.com, J-I-M-K-A-R-R-H. Lots of consonants. I serve clients through consulting, coaching, and advisory work. No offshore SEO services here. And I would be happy to talk with you about the messaging challenges or opportunities you're facing. I'm also devoting more time to professional speaking these days, so 
If you know of associations or companies that would benefit from hearing about ways to manage their message, please put us in touch. My email is jim at jimcar.com. Thanks again until next time on the Manage Your Message podcast. Thanks for joining us on the Manage Your Message podcast with Jim Carr. You'll find show notes and other resources at manageyourmessagepodcast.com and jimcar.com. Please help us serve you and other message managers by subscribing to, rating, and reviewing this podcast. And connect with Jim on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Jim Carr. Until next time, we hope your business message is shared well and often.